Dr. John Beeler from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Dr. Beeler is Assistant Director of the Medical Department at Bethlehem Steel Corporation in Bethlehem, and he has been a member of the General Service Board of AA since 1971. He serves on the CPC Committee, which for those of you who don't know, is the Committee for Cooperation with the Professional Community. He was just recently elected to the, board, the World Service Board of Directors, and we are delighted to have him with us this afternoon. Dr. Beeler. Thank you, Phyllis, and thank you all for coming. I'm just really flattered to see this many people, this many people that are interested in the problem of alcoholism in industry. And uh, we've... Uh, God, I think we've planned an excellent program for you, and uh, it should be a very informative and interesting panel. We hope, uh, depending on the time, there may be some time for questions at the later. We'll just sort of, sort of play that by ear. Our first speaker is Mr. Clarence Shepard, the chairman of the board of directors of Gulf Oil of Canada in Toronto, Ontario. Mr. Shepard was born in Winnipeg and received his uh, Bachelor of Law degree in 1937 from the University of Manitoba Law School after earlier studies at McGill University. During the war, he served as a captain <coughs> overseas with the 4th Canadian Armored Division. Following his discharge in 1945, he became a partner in the Winnipeg law firm of Thompson, Shepard, Diltz, Jones, and Hall. During his association with the firm, he was lecturer at the Manitoba Law School from 1946 to 1953. Mr. Shepard was appointed Chief Commissioner of the Federal Board of Transport Commissioners at Ottawa in 1957, and a year later became Acting Chairman of the Air Transport Board. In 1959, he joined uh, Gulf's General uh, Gulf as general counsel, and a year later became vice president and director of the company. He was elected chairman of the board of directors in 1964. He is also a director of the Toronto Dominion Bank and a member of the board of trade of the Metropolitan Toronto. Active in many public service organizations, he is a trustee of the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and a member of the Ontario Alcoholism and Drug Addiction Research Foundation. Mr. Shepard will discuss Gulf Oil of Canada's philosophy of their alcoholism program. Mr. Shepard. Thank you very much, Dr. Beeler. I might tell all you good people he's just read most of the poop sheet that's put out by our public relations department. <laughs> And I don't know whether it's true or not. I'd also like to mention that I finally found out how to be sure of getting a seat. Uh, <laughs> not long ago, I heard a, a skiing story in Canada, and it, it might have its origin down here in Colorado. I don't know. It has to do with a high-speed skier who missed a turn and he sailed off over a steep precipice and a very deep precipice. Just as he took off into space, he grabbed a branch, like so. And wonder of wonders, it held. So there he was, swinging in space. 
He looked down. He had quite a bit of fear every place that you and I know where you get fear. And he shouted, help, help. Is there anyone down there who can help me? Silence. No answer. He looked up, still swinging in space, and shouted, help, help. Is there anyone up there who can help me? Silence at first, and then a rich, rumbling, deep voice from above, and our swinging, friends heard, swinging friend heard these words, Have faith. I am your higher power. Have faith. Let go. Have faith. Our dangling friend looked down again, and he saw nothing but space below him. After a moment's silence and thought, he looked up again and shouted, Isn't there anyone else up there who can help me? I don't need to tell this audience that that skier wasn't a member of AA. More than 16 years ago, I knew a young girl who happened to be 16 at the time, and she wrote a little poem to mark the time when her mother joined AA. And here's the poem my young friend wrote. No words will ever be able to say the thoughts that come to me today, the unhappy life that used to be, has vanished so remarkably when troubles began to mount and mount, I'd force myself to stop and count the wonderful things that he had done and pray our family would witness one. Soon the truth shone brightly through, and now you're back as good as new. This wonderful conference, I think, reflects thousands of similar miracles, each of which reflects the reason for the remarkable success of the AA Fellowship. I would like to start my modest contribution to these proceedings by adding my personal and humble tribute to the great work of AA wherever it exists. If I have any complaint at all about AA, it's because the members are so damn good it makes me feel like a second-class citizen. <laughs> but this particular second-class citizen is grateful for the privilege of participating in this panel on AA and industry. Now, having already given you a 16-year-old poem, let me move to a personal experience I had about eight years ago when we visited uh, our company's gas plant at Nevis, Alberta. There may be one or two of you who don't know about Nevis. Um, it has 15 residents. Uh, it's located near Stetler, Alberta. That may not help a hell of a lot either. <laughs> And that's about 115 miles southeast of Edmonton, Alberta. 
If you haven't heard of Edmonton, it's 2,000 miles south of our staging point for our Arctic exploration. (laughs) It's located in beautiful ranching country, and on arrival there this particular day, I walked into the manager's office, and he incidentally has a staff of 52. Most of them live in Stetler, obviously. And his plant processes 125 million cubic feet of raw gas each day. And that's a pretty hazardous occupation if it isn't done right. The plant manager had on his desk a copy of our then newly written company policy on alcoholism. He told me his copy had arrived in the mail about 10 days before. That's all he knew about it. He just got it in the mail. And he'd read it and reread it the first weekend he had it because he'd made a date to fire one of his key employees the following Monday morning. And he didn't want to do it. So over the weekend, he decided that perhaps he'd use this piece of paper. So when he had the interview with this employee, he said to him, Joe, your drinking has interfered with your work performance to the point that I'm afraid we're going to have to terminate We don't want to do it. You and I have been friends for ten years. Our families are friends. But we can't interfere through personal friendship with the safety of this operation and the company personnel here. And then he went on to say, here's a piece of paper I received last Friday. I'm not sure what it means, but let's go over it and see if we can work out some way of uh, avoiding this firing, or at least postponing it. So the two of them went over it together, and this was our newly published policy on alcoholism. And Joe, the problem-drinking employee, said he guessed, guessed maybe he did have a little problem. He said his wife had found out where the nearest AA meeting was, And he would undertake, with her help, I'm sure she was giving him lots of help, uh, (laughs) to go to a meeting. And in fact, that week, the week before I was there, he'd gone to his first meeting about 20 miles away. The manager asked me if he'd done the right thing, and I don't need to tell you that I agreed that he had. The follow-up on the story was that almost to a day, two years later, I was in Nevis again. You don't go to Nevis more often than every two years. Uh, and, and the plant manager was waiting for me, and he reminded me about Joe, and he told me that not only had he not had a drink for two years, had not been fired, he'd earned a promotion, and had really put AA on the map in Nevis, Alberta. That's not a hell of a big achievement, that last part. Um, but this little, this little true story about Joe and our Nevis gas plant is, is just by way of a small illustration of why I personally feel very strongly that all companies and all employers should study the growing amount of available literature on alcoholism in business and industry and then accept as part of today's corporate social responsibility, the need for a constructive policy of treatment and self-help for any employee with a drinking problem. 
Now, if our company had committed to writing, and I'm glad to say it hadn't, its policy on this subject during the first more than 50 years of its corporate existence, it might have read this way. If any employee is hungover or takes a drink on the job, he or she will be fired forthwith if caught. If, however, the employee's drinking is successfully hidden through the ingenious efforts of the employee or fellow employees, the employee may continue to receive pay increases while his or her illness of alcoholism progresses undetected. <laughs> Now you know why I'm glad we didn't publish that. <laughs> but in 1967, after much discussion between our enlightened medical directors, and they're not all enlightened, uh, and our then not-so-enlightened senior executive group, we issued the policy I mentioned in the little story of Joe and our gas plant. And in developing the policy, which incidentally is currently under revision, we had a lot of help from other companies in Canada and the United States, from the National Industrial Conference Board in New York, and from the Ontario Addiction Research Foundation in Toronto. And I'll just run over quickly the exact words of our policy. It's a six-point policy. One, the company recognizes that most cases of alcoholism or problem drinking present a health problem. As such, it will provide whatever help it can to any of its employees who become so afflicted. Number two, the company draws a clear distinction between social drinking and problems of alcohol which seriously or continuously affect an employee's work or health. Number three, the medical director, in conjunction with the employee relations department, field personnel offices, and retained doctors is responsible for implementing this policy. In all cases, the anonymity of the individual will be preserved. Number four, each case of suspected alcoholism or problem drinking is encouraged to seek adequate medical investigation and advice. Number five, if the recommended therapy requires time away from work, the company's sick leave policy will apply. Six, should the problem persist, after all reasonable help has been offered, whether through lack of cooperation on the part of the employee or an unsuccessful therapeutic program, appropriate measures will be recommended for the consideration and further direction of the officer concerned. That's the double whammy. Uh, that's the end of the printed policy. Now, the better part of a year was devoted by our company medical director the nurses and employee relations personnel conducting more than 200 seminars with employee groups of 50 to 60 to discuss the policy and the reasons for its adoption. One of our problems, which I was talking to Jack about before we started this afternoon, is that we have a very widely dispersed employee count. It's about 5,000 miles wide and... Uh, about 3,000 miles high, and there are 10,000 people, so some of them work on their own very much. In addition to this, uh, a booklet was written entitled A Guide for Supervisors, Alcoholism Policy, and this was given wide distribution. The booklet emphasized that alcoholism is a major health problem which may affect an employee's work performance. 
And the last page of the booklet is headed, Important Points to Remember. And I mention, I'm going to quote these because I think it helped us to get our supervisors to understand their role in this policy. And I quote, A supervisor's concern is with work performance of his people. Use caution and discretion and do not get involved in witch hunts or prying into personal affairs. Action concerning an employee's drinking habits should be taken only when they interfere with his work performance. When action is indicated, act quickly. You may save his job, his marriage, his health, and even his life. Preserve the individual's anonymity. Now, nowhere in our formal policy or in this guide to supervisors that I've just alluded to is there a specific reference to AA. I think this audience is entitled to know why. Uh, I questioned it, and, but I was told that the purpose of our policy and its implementation was to give official recognition to the illness nature of alcoholism, eliminating or at least diminishing the stigma of lack of willpower that used to characterize the public image of the heavy drinker to a much greater extent than it does today. So once an employee is made aware by reading our policy that alcoholism is a health problem, just as respectable as diabetes or other illnesses that are freely and openly discussed, and takes the step of visiting one, any one of our 12 health centers, he or she is invariably guided to AA. In fact, our company head nurse told me just recently that AA has become the principal source of help to our employees in our many locations across Canada. To ensure that our company policy is known, not only to all our employees, but also to their families, alcoholism being the family illness, you all know it is, we have used our employee magazine, which is mailed either in English or French, or a bilateral company or country, you know, uh, depending on the native tongue of each employee, to each home address. And in our November 1967 issue, we ran our policy in full, plus two explanatory articles. The cover of the magazine itself showed a picture of a bottle, two-thirds empty, one glass empty, one employee full, and carried the caption, Industry, or Alcoholism, a Growing Problem in Industry. A year later, a full follow-up story was, written, was run to report to all our employees from coast to coast how the program was going. Just a few quotes from our first articles. Um, Alcoholics who refuse to face their problem and start the uphill fight to complete sobriety cannot expect to last long at our company. But those who want to help themselves will find a guiding hand in their supervisors, medical and personnel department staffs. They may need treatment in a hospital or rest home, they certainly require the understanding of Alcoholics Anonymous. They will have the necessary security and stability of a job if they recognize their problem and show signs of solving it. Now, we all know 
that there are many facilities and agencies to help the alcoholic. Churches are effective for people who would naturally turn to those institutions for guidance. The Salvation Army gives a great deal of assistance to alcoholics. And some hospitals specialize in the treatment of this disease today. In every province of Canada, there is a government group associated with or part of the Department of Health or, or Education that can provide all phases of treatment. But the article goes on to say this. The best-known agency and the oldest, dating back to 1935, is Alcoholics Anonymous. Members can be found in every town, and usually AA has a telephone listing. AA has a high rehabilitation record. In our 1968, one year later, follow-up article, we ran a first-person story of a 20-year employee, that's someone with 20 years service, who had achieved his first year's sobriety in AA, having been directed there by our company medical director. Makes me wonder a little bit about how much we overpaid him for the first 19 years he was there. <laughs> But here, here are some of his words. And I don't apologize. I'm going to quote them at some length because I think it's a very good story. My supervisor arrived at my house to see me. This isn't me. This is uh, this fellow. It could have been me. Uh, I had spent so much time hiding things from him and from other people at golf that the realization that he was seeing me besotted and bleary-eyed really got through to me. He didn't criticize me or blame me for anything. He never threatened me with loss of my job. He was just interested in helping me. He told me I should do something for my own sake because I was too good a man to let these things happen to me. I think that was the best argument he could have used. The alcoholic's morale inevitably sags, and it needs a build-up. He suggested I should go to Toronto and see our medical director, Dr. Jack Lovering. He also reminded me that the company had recently introduced a new policy on problem drinking. A number of other industries have done the same thing. <clears throat> the idea is that the company itself takes action to help an alcoholic. In the past, he said, this is still a supervisor talking to the poor fellow at his house, the tendency has always been for supervisors to avoid the subject so long as the employee could even half do his job. If a company's officials found out someone was drinking too much, they would fire him. So the reluctance of the employees to report the problem drinker was understandable. This had a very bad effect on the alcoholic. It kidded him into believing that nobody on the job had noticed his over-drinking. In the new approach, industries make it clear to all employees that no one will be fired simply for being an alcoholic. He will be helped to obtain treatment. Only the people who don't cooperate will be fired. This was the program into which I was directed. The first person I met at the Toronto Health Center was the friendly nurse, Marie Bruder, who, as I see it, has done so much for the whole program. She, as well as Dr. Lovering, have been out speaking, showing films and slides to thousands of employees. 
My subsequent interview with Dr. Lovering involved no, no criticism and no unpleasantness. It was a relief to be examined and learn I was in good health. We had a frank talk such as I'd never been able to have before. Dr. Lovering talked about me and my worth as an employee. I remember that because even in my fuddled state, it did my morale a lot of good. He also suggested that I should go either to Alcoholics Anonymous or the Addiction Research Foundation. I chose AA because I'd heard of them. That's a good enough reason in those circumstances. AA has had a remarkable record of success. There is a belief widely accepted that an alcoholic cannot be rehabilitated until he's hit rock bottom. That is, until he is gone as far down as it is possible to go. I am proof that this is not necessarily true. Thanks to the timely action of my supervisor in our company policy, I didn't hit rock bottom. They, along with AA, saved me from that final degradation. I am grateful, and so I am sure, is my wife. That's got to be an understatement. Uh, I could quote more, but I don't think I will. There's a little light that just went off here. I think it's trying to... Uh, I set that thing for that medical crack, and I missed it. <laughs> They're trying to be nice to me up here, but I think the message is still there. Uh, before I leave the two articles that I've been quoting uh, on one year apart in our company magazine that goes to all the employees' homes, you might be interested that they were both dated November, and that means they arrived to be read by the employee, the spouse, and the children in the pre-Christmas season. This timing was not coincidental. Uh, it shows that socially responsible companies, which I hope we are, who really care about the welfare of their employees and family, can be a bit sneaky at times if their sneakiness serves a constructive purpose. Now, in the intervening years, we've continued our education program relating to alcoholism and its treatment, it's become a regular part of our supervisory training. And in 1970, the National Industrial Conference Board included our company as, among others, in a book telling other companies who haven't got this kind of a policy how to make one and have it work. In the next issue of our company magazine, there'll be a major update article on our program. Now, it's difficult for me to speak about AA and industry in generalities because I've been personally involved from its inception with our own program to such an extent that after nine years of its existence, I am deeply aware that its success is due in very large measure to two factors. One, the enlightened views of our medical department, and two, the ever-present availability of AA from coast to coast in Canada. Now, can we measure our success? I say not with any assurance, although I do know that more than 200 employees have consulted our health centers. But it seems to me that the very existence of a printed policy and its frequent but not too frequent publication tends, I believe, 
to cause many families to work out their drinking problems without reference to the company at all. But more often than not, I sense, with successful help from contacting AA direct. So I would say that a box score of rehabilitated employees by tabulating those known to our medical department Understanding how AA works through you, its members, so will our efforts to understand and help our problem-drinking employee be successful. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thank you very much. Excellent. I met our next panelist uh, in 1967 at a meeting sponsored by the National Council on Alcoholism. Uh, Jack Guest uh, joined the staff of uh, the National Council as their West Coast representative, where he served as consultant to councils and committees on alcoholism throughout the western states for their workshops, <coughs> the conference, and their schools on alcoholism. Before that, he organized and staffed and served as director of an alcoholic rehabilitation clinic in Contra Costa County. Before joining NCA, Jack uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree from San Diego State College and an MPH, Master of Public Health, from the University of California at Berkeley. He has been active in the Association of Labor Management Administrators and Consultants on Alcoholism, the Alcohol and Drug Problems Association of North America, the American Public Health Association, and the National Council on Alcoholism. Jack is presently manager of the Employee Counseling Department in the Corporate Industrial Relations Division of Hughes Aircraft Company in Los Angeles, California. Jack? Thank you very much, Dr. Beeler. I must say it's a, it's a fantastic honor for someone like myself who has been working full-time professionally in the field of alcoholism to be invited to address this group. I owe an awful lot to this group. As I, as I look out and, and see smiling faces, and as I came in last night from the airport and saw people walking the streets, everybody was happy. In fact, so happy that I got ripped off for 75 cents from the Coke machine outside my room in the hotel, and I didn't even build a resentment. <laughs> now, that's real, that really has to be great. Like I say, I've, I've been associated with AA for about 12 or 13 years now. And in fact, the association is such that without this marvelous fellowship, I wouldn't have been able to do my job, absolutely. And I'll give you some illustrations. 
I started out in an alcoholism treatment clinic in Northern California, and I was, it was remarkable. Most people can't say Contra Costa County, but you can, John. That was pretty good. And that's where I first had my contact with, with AA. Didn't know anything about the organization. And here I was going to start a new clinic, and I thought, how can anyone run a clinic unless they have the cooperation and close working relationship with AA? It would be an impossible thing to do. I was very naive. So I went to a friend of mine who I knew was a member of AA, and I said, hey, I'd like to meet with your leadership. You know, take me to your leader kind of thing. <laughs> and he said, well, Jack, you know, we, we have an informal organization. We don't have that kind of a structure. We don't have a president or a vice president that I can take you to. What do you have in mind? And I said, well, I'll tell you, I would like some feedback from people who know something about alcoholism about the kinds of policies and procedures they'd like to see us use at the clinic. You know, things like drugs are very important. Things like hours, when would the clinic be open? And he said, hey, that sounds like a natural for our hospital and institutions committee. Maybe they'd meet with you. So I said, beautiful. So I met with them. And they did help. They were a great help to me. But a very interesting thing happened. I was about 29 or 30 years old at the time and had a lot of enthusiasm. And after the meeting, one of the senior gentlemen that was present walked up to me and he said, Jack, hold on a second. And I said, yes. And, and he said, you know, I came here prepared to dislike you because I don't know what your clinic can do anyhow. But I like your attitude. You're open. I think you're going to incorporate some of the things that we suggested. And I said, yeah, I am. That's why I, that's why I ask you all here to, to get those kinds of suggestions. But he said, I'm going to tell you one thing. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, if after your clinic's been in operation for a couple of years, there's still a few drunks running around, don't be too surprised. <laughs> And, of course, it's been 13 years since then, and there are still a few drunks running around Contra Costa County. Also, I must say, we have some employees from Hughes in this room. I don't know why they're here. I guess they came to keep me honest. But, but what they didn't know is that I already understand that this is a program of honesty. So I'd plan to be that way anyhow. From the Alcoholism Clinic, I moved to the National Council on Alcoholism, and I had the the privilege of working with Mrs. Marty Mann for a period of about six years. Tremendous experience for me. But even there, no way could we make any progress without members of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Back in those days, almost anybody that was doing anything in alcoholism was a recovered alcoholic. Most of the members of our local boards of directors, etc. So even then, no way could I accomplish what I was supposed to be doing without your help and your assistance. And, of course, now I'm the director of the employee counseling program at Hughes Aircraft Company. Sixty percent of our caseload is alcoholism. And, again, no way could we be successful without the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm here to talk to you a little bit about the Hughes program. There are three areas that I want to cover. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the roadblocks or misunderstandings that many people have when employee counseling or employee alcoholism programs are mentioned. Secondly, I'd like to get into some of the steps involved, the mechanism. How do I work with a supervisor to help him try to solve an alcoholic problem that he has in his department? And then I'd like to talk a little bit about results because I think the results are impressive. They're impressive from a business and a management point of view. First, let's start with the roadblocks or misunderstandings. 
And the reason I want to get into these probably aren't all that applicable to this group. This group is obviously much more sophisticated than the run-of-the-mill group that I would talk to, for example, in management and supervision. The reason that I do want to get into them is that some of you may want to go back to your respective employers and get something like this started. And these are the kind of roadblocks that management is going to throw at you, and you need some answers to their questions. Probably the most disturbing thing to management is that since it's an alcoholism program or a counseling program with the largest portion of the caseload being alcoholism, alcoholism and alcohol are associated. And immediately, if you run into people that drink, you're threatening their drinking, and they don't like it. They envision this program as one that might put out a directive, one martini at lunch. The next directive would be no Christmas parties and things like that. So you threaten them. So the first thing I think you have to do is put them at ease and tell them that programs like this have nothing to do with drinking per se. It has a lot to do with drinking that seriously and repeatedly impairs job performance, but nothing to do with drinking per se, and for some very good reasons. If the criteria on entering into our program was drinking per se, for every 12 people that we would get, we'd get one live one and probably 11 false positives. Now, that doesn't make any business sense, and no business would buy that kind of a thing where if you found 12, you only got one live one. Another reason, of course, that you can't base a program on drinking, per se, is that that happens to be a very personal decision. It's none of Hughes Aircraft's business whether its employees drink or don't drink. That would be interference in their personal lives. So we do not get involved in that at all. Of course, a better reason would be if I were to stand out in front of our Building 1 and the employees that are here know our Building 1. It's where all of our senior people are, all our wheels. About 1.30 and smell breaths as they return back to work. We'd lose a lot of very good employees. <laughs> and the first one would probably be me for doing it. Another common misunderstanding is that programs like this are set up to protect alcoholics. You know, they ought to be fired. They're not doing their job. All of a sudden, we've got a program called employee counseling or employee alcoholism that's going to protect them. And, of course, this is a misnomer as well because we do just the opposite. People have been protecting alcoholics in industry for years. You know the old thing. John comes in and he's hung over. So Fred, the supervisor, says, Hey, Pete, why don't you take over for him? He's not feeling too good today. So we've been covering up for the alcoholic for years. What a program like this does is to confront the problem and meet it head on and make sure that corrective action is taken. Another misunderstanding by senior management is, uh-oh, it's a treatment program and treatment programs are expensive. Well, it's not a treatment program and it's not expensive. We call it a pre-treatment program. Management will argue, we don't have treatment programs for cancer and heart disease and all those other things. Why should we have one for alcoholism? And I say, hey, that isn't what we're all about. Treatment is going to take place out in the community, mainly out in AA, for our alcoholic population at least. So we're not going to treat it within the company any more than we treat anything else, and it isn't expensive. We'll get into some of the payoff later when I talk about results. Another common misunderstanding is, why should we set up a program for alcoholics? We don't have one for diabetics. We don't have one for any other illness. Why for alcoholics? And we haven't set up a program for alcoholics. The criteria for entry into our program, as I'll talk about at length, happens to be job performance, so that any problem that impairs job performance is picked up by us. It just so happens that alcoholism happens to be the major one. 
Let's move then quickly into the steps involved in the program. And as I see any program, you might use different names, but there are four basic steps involved. The first one is identification. Obviously, you have to know you have a problem. The second one is confrontation. The employee has to know he has a problem. The third one is referral out for help for the problem. And the fourth one is follow-up. Now, let's look at each one of these in a little more detail. First of all, identification. At Hughes, we have very conservative ways of identifying problems. Some companies are aggressive. Some are conservative. We happen to be quite conservative. We only accept problems in two ways. One is a self-referral. About a third of our people get to us as self-referrals. They know they have a problem, they know we're there to help, and they come to us for that help. The other two-thirds are supervisor referrals. The supervisor sees job performance deteriorating, and he calls in to get help from us. One of the things that we emphasize, we don't want our supervisors to be diagnosticians. They aren't trained to diagnose and we don't want them doing that. What we do want them doing is being good supervisors and documenting job performance. We want to be very careful that we don't embark on a witch hunt. We want to be very, very careful that the facts indicate there is a problem. The kinds of things that we look at with supervision are things like attendance, reliability, uh, interpersonal problems with fellow employees, obviously production, and sick leave. Those are the kinds of things that we're very concerned about. Once we've determined with supervision we have a problem, then we move to the next step. The next step is probably the most difficult one, and it's confrontation. Confrontation really involves two separate steps. First, the supervisor has to confront the employee with the fact that he has a performance problem, and he has to be very specific about what that problem is then we in employee counseling confront the employee with his problem that's causing the poor performance problem. For example, with his alcoholism. This is a very tough step. It's a very direct step. It's the most difficult one for us to get supervisors to do. You don't like to sit down with a fellow employee and say, hey, I'm really unhappy with these areas of your performance. They have to be corrected. They're unsatisfactory. I've developed kind of a philosophy, I guess, which enables me to be very direct in confrontations and still feel like I'm being fair to that employee. And I think that's the whole key, being fair. And it goes something like this. Every human being has a right, a right to know what you're going to do with them and why and what they can do to avert that action. If you're going to discipline them, if you're going to discharge them, whatever you're going to do, they have a right to know you're going to do it and they have a right to know why you're going to do it, and they have a right to know what you expect them to do to avoid that particular problem. I think if you, if you get that kind of a feeling, it enables you to be very direct. I'll give you an example of a confrontation. We had one of our MTS people, members of the technical staff, that was behaving in a rather bizarre way. The supervisor called me, described his behavior, and I said, I'd like to interview the employee. I went out and interviewed the employee, went back to the supervisor. supervisor says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'd like to get him in the hospital because that's what he needs. And the, the supervisor said, oh, he won't go. There's no way you can get him in the hospital. I said, I'm not going to do it. You are. So I said, me? I can't. You're the employee counselor. What are you trying to do? Tell me to get him in the hospital. I said, all right, let's explore it. What are you going to do with him? He said, well, his job is being phased out over here. We have another job over here. Actually, it's a little more responsibility, maybe even a little more pay. I said, are you going to recommend him for it? 
He said, well, gee, you know, with his behavior, how can I? I said, then what are you going to do? And he said, well, that's why I called you in. I said, hey, wait a minute. Suppose he won't go to the hospital. What is his reality? What's going to happen to that man? He said, well, we'll probably lay him off. I said, you're going to lay him off? He has 22 years service. He said, well, what else can I do? If his behavior doesn't change, I'm going to have to. I said, I'll tell you what you do. You call him in here, and you tell him what you just told me exactly the way you told it to me. That's his reality. That's what's going to happen to him, and that's what you need to do. He called the employee in. He told him exactly that. The employee got on the phone, and he said, Jack, which hospital was it you wanted me to go to? That's motivation. That's real motivation. We use another thing to motivate. We use a disciplinary process. And it goes something like this. First, a verbal warning regarding performance. Then we move to putting something in the personnel file. Now, I, I have to emphasize, we don't put anything about drinking in the personnel file. We put things regarding attendance, reliability, production, sick leave, etc. That's what goes in the personnel file. We move from that step to two or three days off without pay. And we move from that step to discharge. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Here you've got a medical disease, and what are you doing? You're punishing that poor, suffering alcoholic. And I'm saying we're not doing that at all. Everybody in this room knows better than I that if you give an alcoholic, practicing alcoholic, four days off with or without pay, and he doesn't even have to call in, he'll love it. He'll have a ball. <laughs> what we are doing, we're establishing credibility. If his wife didn't happen to be lucky enough to find Al-Anon, she's probably been threatening him, warning him, etc. His supervisor's probably been doing the same thing. What we're trying to do is to say, hey, this is what we're going to do, and then we do it. And he sees us do it. Then we go to the next step, and we do it. By the time we get around to the disciplinary leave or the discharge, he's thinking. And he says, uh-oh, they told me they were going to do that, and then they did it. And they told me they were going to do that next, and they did it. That's all we're doing with this process is establishing credibility with the employee. We're saying, this is what we're going to do, and then we do it. Incidentally, I have a problem with supervisors on that. I'll say, okay, where are we and what are you going to do? And they'll say, well, I want to discharge him. And I'll say, hey, wait a minute. Can you discharge him? No, I'm, and I don't really intend to, but I'm going to tell him I'm going to. And, and that's when I go through the roof. You don't ever tell any human being anything that you don't really intend to do. That's the difference between a threat and a promise. I never threaten anybody, but I promise lots of people every day. From the confrontation then, we've got him motivated, and the next part is the referral out. And for our alcoholic problems, that's one of the easiest ones. We have a lot of very good inpatient facilities, inpatient facilities, I might add, that emphasize AA in their treatment. And then, of course, we have AA all over Southern California, as you all know, because I see some of you here that I recognize as members from Southern California. So the referral out really isn't all that difficult. Follow-up is extremely important. We deal mainly with problems that can recur, chronic problems. So you have to follow up to make sure something's happening. We follow up with in at least three ways. First, with the organization or the individual that you referred the employee to. I might call a member of AA and say, hey, did so-and-so get in touch with you? Yeah, and we've been to five meetings so far. We intend to go to some more. You need to know that that contact took place and something's happening. We want to follow up with the employee because we want to know, has he accepted his problem and is he doing anything about it? Is he growing? And there's no one 
in this audience that doesn't know what I mean by is he growing, is something happening with him. And then we want to follow up with the supervisor because he may not understand alcoholism the same way, in fact, he doesn't understand alcoholism the same way that you and I do. And ten months later, performance may go up, and ten months later, the guy may have a slip. And the supervisor says, man, I've had ten months fantastic work out of him. He deserves it. We're going to let him have it. He deserves that. And three weeks later, we have to put the guy back in the hospital. So we follow up with supervision to let him know whenever it starts back down, if it does, we want to know and we want to know right away. Now, if you have a program, if your identification is identifying people and your confrontation is motivating them and you're referring them out and you've got a follow-up program, what can happen? What kinds of results are possible? At the time that I did this, we'd seen 975 cases. Now we're up over 1,300. Out of the 1,300, we've discharged 71. Out of the 71 that we've discharged, 40 were alcoholic, and we've rehired 20 of those 40. And some of them will come into my office and say, Jack, the best thing that ever happened to me was when Hughes fired me. It's the only time that I finally recognized, hey, I have a serious problem, and I really need to take corrective action. As I said earlier, 60% of our caseload is alcoholism. Interestingly enough, it's interestingly enough to management, but not to you and I. It's evenly distributed in the workforce. We have what we call members of the technical staff. Those are our senior people. Then we have salaried exempt, salaried non-exempt, and hourly employees. If we break down our workforce into a percentage of each one of those various categories, and if we do the same thing to our caseload, they mesh just like this. There's many problems at the top as there are at the bottom. Now, the reason I say that's interesting is that one of the resistances we ran into eight years ago when we started our program was management said, yeah, we really don't need that kind of a program at Hughes. We're a very technical organization. We have 14,000 people with one or more advanced degrees. So, you know, our people are too smart. Well, I think you and I know better than that, and our management knows better than that now. Another kind of interesting thing, 26% of our workforce is female, and 26% of our caseload is female. But the females are underrepresented in the alcohol population and overrepresented in the other problem area. But not to the extent that we might have thought a few years back. I can remember when I first came into the field, people were talking five to one, five males for every female. Recently, that's dropped down to where a lot of people are quoting three to one. Well, my feeling was at Hughes, since we have equal supervision over males and females, we ought to have an equal opportunity, as it were, to discover alcoholism among, equally among the sexes. And at Hughes, it's only two to one. For every two males that we discover, we discover one female. Eighty-four percent of our caseload are employees. Sixteen percent are family members. We're very much interested in family members. A problem with a family member can cause on-the-job problems in the person that doesn't have the problem. The average age is interesting. The average age in our caseload is 45. So we're getting people right in the middle of their most productive years. These are people you don't want to lose. The length of service with the company, we have a fairly stable workforce as aerospace firms go. The average length of service at Hughes is eight years. Now, we're dealing only with problem employees, mind you, and 60% alcoholism, and we all know alcoholics can't hold jobs, right? We all know that. So you would suspect that the average length of service in our caseload would be something less than the eight years for the company as a whole, maybe five years, four years. 
turns out not to be the case at all. Alcoholics are very successful at hiding. Twelve years. <laughs> now what this tells me, and what this tells management, is that not only do we have people 45 right in the middle of their most productive years, but we have long service employees, people that are experienced and very valuable to the company. Interestingly enough, I mentioned disciplinary action. I mentioned some discharges. We have never had a grievance filed by any of our unions on any action that was recommended by employee counseling. We've discharged, as I said, 71 people. We have never had a formal charge filed against the company, even though we've discharged blacks, Chicanos, females, and males over 40. And those of you that are in any government contracting business know that those are the groups that can file formal charges. We've never had one filed. One of the really great things about working in a program like this is everybody wins. You know, it's really nice to work in a program where that happens. So let's look at it for a minute. How about the supervisor? What have we done for him? We've helped him solve a problem that he was certainly ill-equipped to solve. He no longer has that problem. And we've increased productivity in his department. Can't emphasize that too much. Nowadays, we hear more and more and more about increased productivity. I don't think there's any better way to increase productivity than to install a program like this. So we've helped the supervisor. The employee, it's obvious. He still has his family, by and large, still has his job. He's still a productive, useful member of society. So we've really done a lot for him. How about the company? Back when we first installed our program, we looked at things like lost time, alcoholic versus non-alcoholic. We also looked at things like increased medical claims for alcoholics versus non-alcoholics. And our finance people came up with a figure. This is an estimate now. But their estimate was that each alcoholic at Hughes Aircraft cost the company $4,000 per year. Now, obviously, that varies from this employee to this employee, but that's what they came up with, which meant at that time we had 6% alcoholism on the payroll. At that time, we were losing $7.2 million annually due to alcoholism alone. Now, I take that same $4,000 figure, since it was accepted then, I'll accept it now. I happen to think it's low, but I'll accept it and use it. If you crank that into some of our statistics, we are now saving the company $1.2 million annually, or about $10 for every dollar invested in our program, and that's a pretty good payoff. Now, I always like to go one step further when I, when I expand this out as to who wins. Let's take our 650 families, and let's see what would have happened to them had we not had a program at Hughes. Well, probably most of them would have been discharged. They probably would have gone to TRW or Lockheed or some other firm. Those that were still employable would have been put on there, but eventually they would have become unemployable. Then what would happen? Well, they, long, they lose their families. If they don't have a spouse that has a member of Al-Anon and has it all together and goes out and provides the bread for the family, then they go on welfare. And who pays for welfare? You and I do with our taxes. And what would have happened to some of these employees at least? Some of them obviously would have found their way to AA, but some of them would have found their way to Skid Row, where we would have arrested them, you know, the old revolving door scene. And who pays for that? You and I do. And then eventually when they got real sick, they would have gone to county hospital. And who pays for that? You and I do. What I'm suggesting is that if more corporations would follow through on this social responsibility, not only would they retain valued employees, but they would 
they would circumvent this downward thing. People would be getting off up here while they were still employed. And we could decrease, I think, very significantly the numbers that are reaching Skid Row. So programs like this have tremendous potential. In closing, I'd just like to say one thing. I would like to thank Dr. Beeler, Dr. Norris, the planning committee, my fellow panelists, and a very special thanks, really, to each and every member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for all of the help that you have been able to give me over the past 12 or 13 years. It is absolutely, sincerely appreciated, and thank you so much. Thank you, Jack, for a very good nuts and bolts presentation on developing an alcoholism program and a worthwhile message.